Welcome back to another episode of the UserWise podcast. I'm your host, Shrieker, and today I'm joined by Riley Doherty, a colleague extraordinaire at UserWise, a human factors engineer. Um, so this UserWise podcast is brought to you by um, UserWise, a San Jose-based human factors consulting company, and our consultants partner with medical device manufacturers to aid in the design process to help develop uh, medical devices that are safe and effective to use. So with the goal with our regular episodes with this podcast is to kind of pull back the curtain and demystify the guidance from the FDA revolving around human factors and make it more accessible uh, to our listeners. So in this episode, we'll be covering a little bit more about human factors. Um, in the last episode, Alden kind of set us up with what human factors is and um, what we'll be kind of expecting uh, through the series with the podcast series. But now in this episode, um, Riley will take us through um, some of the nitty gritties of the human factors process and um, what it entails. So I'm very psyched to have you here. Thanks for coming, Riley. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so maybe this is the kind of perfect segue for you to introduce yourself to our listeners. Um, obviously, we've worked in the past before, so I know a little bit about you, but I'm curious as well. So can you give me a little bit of background on what got you into human factors and all that? Yeah, no problem. Uh, so my name is Riley Doherty. I am a human factors engineer here at UserWise. Um, my education is in mechanical engineering and biomedical engineering. Uh, after graduation, I worked as a reliability engineer at Baxter International. Um, and about a year ago, I joined here at UserWise as a human factors engineer. That's pretty cool. Um, so you said you worked a little while at Baxter and then that brought you here. Um, so what was that transition like for you? I mean, you said reliability engineering. So what mm -hmm. got you into human factors? Yeah, so I... Um, when I worked at Baxter, I actually started in a rotational development program. And for the first six months, I worked um, in hospitals and I would interview pharmacy technicians and uh, nurses in order to understand their unmet needs. Um, this experience sort of introduced me to the world of understanding the, the needs of the user um, from an engineering perspective. And so our goal was to identify their unmet need in um, the drug development process and then transform that into a design concept. Um, so I had a really great experience with that. Um, then for the next year and a half, I worked as a reliability engineer, which was also a really neat experience where I worked on infusion pumps and I made sure that they would work for the entire service life. Um, and I think during my time there, I uh, realized that something that's important to me is understanding the end effect of these medical devices on the user and how easy are they to use. So. Um, I think human factors was a really good uh, next step for me. Yeah, it definitely does seem like, and working with you, knowing how passionate you are about human factors, we share that kind of uh, passion about you know user needs and all of that. So mm -hmm. I think uh, definitely you've made the right choice there. <laughs> I'm glad to have you um, here working with us. Yeah. Um, so I guess that kind of brought you into human factors. Um, well, do you remember the first project that we worked on? <laughs> um, so I guess just for the listeners of background, um, Riley and I worked on, I think Riley's first project was with me. And, yep. Yeah. Uh, um, we worked on a COVID-19 test kit. Mm -hmm. um, and how was your experience working on that project? Yeah, it was awesome. Um, so I I think it was my first week or maybe my second week of being here. And I, <laughs> I got told about the project. I'm sure I have plenty of time to okay. onboard to all the practices and whatnot. But 
Um, but yeah, then we sort of kicked off um, and, and got to working on this project pretty quickly. Um, and I had a really great time. I think uh, for me, like, it was important to have that onboarding time to understand what is human factors and how do you, you know, learn all these new processes. Um, but then it was really cool to work with you and get to um, just see some of the things that you knew, your human factors expertise. Like, I distinctly remember um, we were setting up the room and you had to be particular about where you were placing the chair where the moderator sits. Mm. Um, one, because of COVID, we had to be obviously at least six feet away. But right. even after that, you were mentioning to me that you want to be far enough away that they don't feel like um, you're like necessarily like sitting in the room too close to them. Um, but instead, you want to be observing from um make it feel like the participant um, didn't even know that you were in the room. So that, like, even knowing something like that, I think you can really only get from working with another human factors engineer, and it was pretty cool. Yeah, it was absolutely brilliant working with you, too. Yeah. Um, the kind of energy and you, your own set of skills that you bring, yeah. um, it, was, it was a great fit. And, yeah, I had fun working with you, too. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, uh, but I guess... In, I would love for you to share that experience further with our listeners and also kind of um, bring in general your human factors body of knowledge that you've amassed working um, as a consultant here at UserWise. Um, so last week, um, this is just for you, a li quick recap. I, Alden and I talked a little bit about what are the different kinds of FDA guidances that are out there for re regarding human factors practices for medical devices. We covered that and we kind of were getting into what human factors is and why it's necessary and all of that mm -hmm. um, so the goal is for it would be great if you could shed some light for our um, listeners on how these processes are actually implemented um, here at UserWise so maybe like a little bit of a you know peek through the window as to what a product goes through what are the different kinds of pro processes a product would go through mm -hmm. um, with respect to human factors so Let's assume that there's someone out there who wants to, you know, they have a medical product mm -hmm. and they have to, they, obviously their one gateway thing is to go through the FDA, right? So they mm -hmm. want to submit it to the FDA. Um, so what it, what, do, what do they do? So they have this medical product and they want to start human factors, product. they want to do good, um, you know, user-centered development of their product. So what would that look like? What's the first step in their whole process? Yeah. Um, great question. I think the first step uh, for developing any medical device would be identifying the users and uh, just user research in general. So um, this would probably ideally happen before you even have a prototype. So you have this concept for a product and you want to make it work. Um, so what you would uh, think about is consider who's going to be using this product where are they going to be using it, and what are the different ways that they might use it. Um, so I guess as an example, maybe we could take the COVID test kit um, sure. as one example of a medical device um, to, to try to give um, a, a little bit more color to this stage of the uh, human factors process. Um, so for a COVID-19 test kit, who are the users? It's going to be um, actually a, a bunch of people. <laughs> we, we consider the um, general public, per se, as uh, lay users in hum human factors terminology. 
And so this means that it's people of variety of education, variety of training, um, variety of careers, um, really everything you can think of. Um, that's that's what a, lay, a general lay user is going to be. And so um, you need to take that into account when you're designing your product and thinking of your product. I guess as an alternate example, um, something like an infusion pump would be used by both nurses who are going to be interacting with it and setting it up. Um, and that's that's likely. Yeah. <laughs> that's likely it for infusion pumps. But um, what you think about in that stage when you're identifying the users is what kind of training do they have? Um, what kind of education do they have? Do they have any um, capabilities that we should be aware of, such as strength and dexterity limitations or um, hearing limitations, um, sight limitations, anything like that you might want to consider. Um, what are they wearing? Are they going to be wearing PPE? So there's a lot of questions that are important to ask. Um, and then I think on top of identifying the users, the next step is identifying the use environment. And so for an infusion pump, that's going to be a hospital. For a COVID-19 test kit, um, again, it's going to be really a lot of different things. So it could be used in the home, um, probably almost always used in the home, but maybe someone chooses to use it in their car or outside. And so you need to consider um, like, can this medical device be fit for use in those different scenarios? Um, and when you're thinking about the design, it's important to think about the things that the user might care about. Um, so for instance, for a lot of medical devices that are getting brought into the home, um, do we have the electrical power that we need to power them? Do we have the space for them? Is it something that looks discreet or is it a little bit um, obtrusive if the user didn't want you know their their friends to see when they come over so um, yeah those are some of the things that I would encourage people to think about I think it's just a, a list to get started with but um, so I think. yeah that's great um, that's a great list I think it's that covers a lot of different things that um, I have thoughts about too so that's perfect um, I think what you're basically saying, you know, single, I guess, term is user research, right? Mm -hmm. Like start off by understanding your users, where they are, where they're using the product and stuff like that. Um, when working with clients, I guess I've worked with two kinds of, you know, clients. One, they have an indication for use, like they have a product and they have an indication for use that's been laid down. Mm -hmm. So they know who's going to be using this product and they know where this product is going to be used. Um, so, for example, if it's like a COVID-19 test kit that's to be used at point of care, mm -hmm. then their indication for use would say a point of care. And, you know, this is for to be used in a clinical or healthcare setting. Um, versus over-the-counter would be, you know, at homes. And uh, there's another kind of, uh, <clears throat> pe people could come from another perspective where they don't have an indication for use nailed down yet. This could be really, really early stage development where they're really um, kind of trying to hone down on what they want based on the needs that are out there with the user group. Mm -hmm. So that's a different kind of research. And I think your conversation made me think, and I was like, hmm, so what do we do here user-wise to do that? early stage user research yeah. and kind of makes me think about user interviews, contextual inquiry. Um, do you want to talk more about, have you, uh, do you have anything else to the add to the list or? Uh, no, I mean, I think I, I fully agree. I think those are aspects of our work that play a role into that user research step. Um, and I think uh, when we have the opportunity to work on a pretty early stage product, we're able to 
um, share our expertise and with our, you know, um, experience working on a variety of different projects and no knowledge of of that user space, I guess, um, then we're able to share that with, with our clients too. Absolutely. Um, so that's great. So you start off with user research and mm -hmm. you understand um, your users, you understand the user environment, and th it's a great point that you made with the demographics, like you kind of keep an eye out for left-handed use versus right-handed use. Is that what you mm -hmm. meant by dexterity? Um, uh, yeah, that's definitely one part of it. I yep, think. exactly. Um, Yes, I think that's a great point. I, I, the left-handed, right-handed use isn't fresh in my mind because, you know, <laughs> a recent project that I worked on, um, we had something that they would need to do with both hands, mm. and we were trying to recruit a left-handed person as well. So Definitely. <laughs> that's fresh on my mind. But, yeah, okay. So we've conducted user research, and, you know, they've kind of honed down who, what their user groups are, and they kind of have the use environment that people would use their product in. Mm -hmm. So what happens next? So what's the next? process or run mm -hmm. next step in human factors yeah I would say the next step is the risk analysis um, which is comprised of a couple different things um, but essentially in short it's identifying um, all of the potential risks of that medical device um, so one one aspect of that is a known use problem summary where you gather up all of the known use errors for predicate devices or similar devices that are already on the market and you use the um, hazards that you identified where there are potential use errors as inputs. The URA <laughs> is a really helpful tool for identifying the hazards, the potential harm, the severity of all that, of the harm and, and everything else. Gotcha. Um, yeah, I, URAs come in various shapes, size, and forms, right? Um, and also it depends on who's writing this risk analysis. Mm -hmm. So some people who come from like more mechanical background might choose to call it a UFMEA, a mm -hmm. user failure modes and effects analysis. Some people call it the UFMECA, which is criticality analysis. And of course there's a URA, which we typically suggest or recommend. Mm -hmm. um, obviously there's like minute differences between each of them, but the the I guess the gist of it is that we're trying to identify risks that stem from um, use of that product and mm -hmm. the subsequent harms so that we can identify serious harm versus not serious harm, like, you know, rate it based on severity, occurrence, and all of that. Definitely. <coughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so maybe for uh, those listening, we can provide an example using the, the COVID-19 test kit. Yeah. Uh, medical device, why not? Um, Absolutely. Let's see, I'm trying to think. So um, one potential task is uh, swabbing your nose, um, typically sometimes with these COVID-19 test kits. Um, and uh, when developing the URA, you would want to outline what is the harm associated with, um, sorry, what is the acceptable response, what is the unacceptable response, and then what is the harm associated with that use error that might occur. Um, so a potential use error is uh, inserting that swab too far up your nostril uh, because that could um, potentially cause some pain to the user. Um, so that's something to consider. And then the next step, we would assess the severity of that harm. Um, typically, there's a scale of severity um, from minor harm up to death. And then we would also assess the occurrence of the harm. Right. 
Um, and I've definitely worked with different risk SOPs and, you know, risk um, kind of pra practice documents mm -hmm. that would have um, matrices that are slightly different risk matrices. So maybe some people call them minor harm. Some people could call, call them, you know, prolonged surgery. It depends on kind of like the, um, the way they're defined. But um, that's a great point. So the swabbing thing, I, I mean, uh, honestly, if anything, the kind of useful risk that I would generate if I were to use a COVID test kit would be swabbing uh, to less depth than normal. Oh, same. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who's going deeper than they should. <laughs> but, but definitely, you know, that's all those point. things are considered for sure, though. Like, mm -hmm. you know, obviously, if, if some kind of behavior is less likely to happen, then it might have a lower occurrence rate. Mm -hmm. And if some behavior is more likely to happen, that might have a higher occurrence rate. Mm -hmm. But um, I guess one thing that people might wonder is how do you ascertain these occurrence rates? Like, how do you know what is the right amount of occurrence? Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, I have w worked on it for a couple different projects, and I'd say that it's been a complicated challenge for me. Yeah. Um, yeah, <laughs> I uh, worked on a project once where we were reevaluating the occurrence for a particular task, um, and I don't, not, I'm not sure how how much detail I should share, so I'd probably rather refrain. Yeah, um, but, absolutely. But it was a, a thoughtful exercise for sure. Yes. Um, so I think what you brought up there is an important point, though. So these occurrence values, we come up with them based on something that's defined in terms of like once and. 10 times, once in 100 times, once in 10,000 times. Mm -hmm. So this is something that, you know, the risk SOPs kind of predetermine um, and they have an occurrence table and we use that, we leverage that to create, to, you know, put occurrences in our risk and user-related risk analyses. Um, however, that's not the end of the story. We mm -hmm. validate them and then we update them as you're, you know, pointing out. Mm -hmm. um, we kind of, we have to see how many times that happened in our usability studies, um, mm -hmm. which I'm sure you'll talk more about in a second. Mm -hmm. um, and then based on what we've seen in the data, we might, you know, go back and update these occurrence levels to a higher occurrence probably or like a lower occurrence if it makes sense to. Usually higher occurrence is what I've seen. Like you would update it to higher occurrence because it's happened one in, you know, 15 times or 10 times or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so thanks for talking about that. So that's kind of like the useful risk analysis um, thing that, you know, we both share experiences working with. Um, so one other thing that I would like to kind of talk about when discussing URAs or user-related risk analysis is mm -hmm. hazard-related use scenarios. Mm -hmm. um, do you have any, like, experience developing that or did you not yet work on that? Uh, no, I haven't yet worked on that. Um, I guess, like, I have worked a little bit on that myself. Like, mm -hmm. I've not extensively, you know, dealt with them. But mm -hmm. um, that's definitely a fun one. <laughs> <laughs> because you are, like, we at UserWise kind of promote this practice of coming up with hazard-related use scenarios, or HRUS, as we call them. Mm -hmm. And these are use scenarios that would cause harm um, so, but all of them, all of that is captured in a single statement. So we try to, we try to capture the hazard, we try to capture the use and the subsequent harm in the same statement. So that's kind of our hazard related use scenario. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, we can talk more about that. Probably that's a whole podcast episode of its own. For sure. Um, so we did this user-related risk analysis and now we have like a few risks down there for mm -hmm. that, you know, COVID-19 test kit. 
um, for example, and then what do we do? Where do we go from there? Like what next? Yeah, then the next step is really getting into the uh, usability studies. Um, so there's two types of usability studies. There's uh, something called a formative study and then something called a validation study. Um, the formative study uh, can take place at any point in the product development cycle. Um, and at UserWise, we recommend formative studies to take place as early and as often as possible. Um, and then a, sum, a validation study would take place immediately uh, before submitting or pretty much right before you submit to the FDA. Um, the key thing to know about validation studies is that you need to have production equivalent products. So that's both the, um, the product itself as well as the packaging and the instructions for use. Um, but talking a little bit about the formative studies, um, uh, what we typically see from, from those is we have users come in and, and use the product. Um, typically a small group of users, maybe about five to eight people, um, and they will give us feedback on uh, the devices that they're using. Um, so it's usually a really helpful tool um, in order to come up with um, basically ways to improve the product overall. Um, so we look at it from uh, the perspective of um, w what kinds of users are they committing here and how can we make sure that these don't happen in the future by uh, changing the product design. Um, and then we also look to see like, oh, and maybe even if they're not making a use there, but are there other ways that we could improve the product design? Gotcha. Um, so now does that mean, I w so what is the time frame looking like for that? Like, do I, should I be conducting formative, if I'm a medical device manufacturer, mm -hmm. should I be conducting formative studies like early on um, and then go for like the next stage or yeah. like do I conduct them later like w at what point do I need to have a working prototype or mm -hmm. should it be fully functional w what kind of um, I guess what fidelity of a you know a device do I need mm -hmm. in order to conduct these formative studies yeah I think if possible each time that you have a prototype um, it's great to do a formative study so um, as a lot of um, people who work in the medical device industry know, as well as really uh, engineering projects overall, the design process is typically very iterative, and um, a, a big part of that is improving the design um, functionality itself, um, but in addition, uh, improving the design usability should be considered, and I think the best way to do that is with a formative study. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I agree with you. And I was just thinking if there's anything I'd like to add there, but I think you got it all. That totally makes sense. Um, I guess I did have one more thing I wanted to add. Yeah. Um, so the um, FDA actually provides a recommendation for the best way to make these design improvements. Um, and it would be helpful to um, fact check myself later, um, I, I believe it's ISO 14971 uh, that lists it out, but essentially there's four methods to um, improving the design. The first one is to design out for uh, the potential user, so basically m design the product in a way that makes it impossible for a user to be uh, completed. Right. Um, the second one is to guard against, um, so potentially there's a way to just you know prevent um, that particular uh, problem from happening in the design and then the 
third way, I believe, is to warn the user through alerts or notifications. Um, and then the last one is to just include a note or a warning in the instructions for use or on the product itself. So I find that super helpful um, to go to as um, recommendations to the product designers um, for how we can basically design the product to be the best it can possibly be. Absolutely. I think those recommendations capture the spirit of human factors there because, you know, just including, oftentimes it's easy, low cost, and um, I guess time saving to just put a warning in a user manual as mm -hmm. opposed to making design changes. Mm -hmm. um, but in the long run, that'll affect so many variables like adoption, uh, adherence, user mm -hmm. adherence, user adoption, all of these things get affected if something is like really hard to use and the only way to use it is by referring to a user manual, then right. you can see how that might affect you know uh, device use or desire to use that device. Right. Um, that's why it's key to start this process early on so that you can change the product's design. Um, as you mentioned in your hierarchy or tier list. Um, yeah. If you do not have that, if the ship has sailed, then the least effective or the least creative, but um, definitely one of the ways to do it is by adding a warning in the user manual. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, we often suggest or recommend that, you know, if possible, if it's early on in the stage, then we change the design. So that's a great point. Yeah. Thanks okay. for adding that. No problem. Um, so yes. So once we have all of that ready so we've done a couple of formative studies let's say and mm -hmm. then you know they have the um product they've updated the design of the product based on the formative study findings and that's let's say all that is done now am i ready to go to the fda do i go forward or what next do you want to tell the yeah so the the last step is to um do a validation study i guess the last step before you consolidate all this information um, but a very important part of the human factors process is a validation study. So this is required by the FDA, um, and um, you, and and what's required is having around 15 to 18 users of each user group use the product, um, and um, ensure that the product would be safe and effective for use. Absolutely. So we've discussed about the validation study and how that's like the final, you know, kind of a study that you would do a, a testing of your product and evaluation. And then now once I'm done with that, so am I finished now? Can I take that report and then go to the FDA? Is that my next step or is there anything else that I have to do? Um, there is one last part of the human factors process and that is the working on the human factors submission report. Um, so what the Human Factor Submission Report in entails is basically a summary of everything we just talked about. Um, so starting from identifying your users and your use environment to working on the risk analysis, both the known use problem summary and the um, critical tasks and uh, other risks and hazards that you identified. Um, summarizing what happened in the formative studies and then of course reporting on everything that happened in the validation study. These are all parts of the Human Factor Submission Report. Um, as well as a couple over, uh, excuse me, a couple of other components, uh, such as a write-up explaining why or how the device is safe and effective for use, a write-up of um, the product itself and how it works, the use specification, a um, bunch of things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when usually, you know, when clients ask me what the difference is between a validation study report and a human factors engineering submission report, I tell them the difference is basically that 
think of the human factors engineering submission report as kind of like an autobiography that your product is writing about its human factors journey. Mm -hmm. So it captures everything from inception, how the design has kind of evolved over the time using preliminary analysis section, and then kind of what exists, you know, out there in the market and what kind of use errors they've been seeing with the known use problem summary and how those are being mitigated in your product, kind of in the risk analysis. Um, and, you know, also we kind of reiterate that in the known use problem summary section. Um, also, some people call it the known use error summary, which is K-U-E-S, mm -hmm. um, which is um, slightly different. I mean, you know, a different way to call the same section. But then we basically come up with all of that and we describe how the product is used, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. um, to the FDA reviewer who's kind of looking at that report. That yeah. totally makes sense. That's a cool way to put it. Too. Yeah. Thanks. Um, so that's the Human Factors Engineering Submission Report. Now, this is, am I now, as a manuf device manufacturer, now ready to go to the FDA? Yeah, that's it. That's all that you need. Thanks a lot for all that information, Riley. Uh, it was very informative and insightful. Um, th that's the kind of the goal of this podcast is like it's to, you know, kind of talk about um, what processes that we do here and kind of um, open up um, this forum for everybody to kind of get the transparency they need into, you know, what the FDA expects and what we do to kind of meet those expectations and also why it's necessary. Um, so I know that it's been a while since we last worked together. Uh, that project with the COVID-19 test kit was the last one. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it was great for me to just geek out with you on human factors, just, just get some, you know, FaceTime with you. And Definitely. I know you, you and I, you know, we have busy schedules, but um, it's fun to, this is this is a great way to for me to, you know, reconnect. With that yeah, with I you. totally agree. It's great to be here and talk <laughs> with you. Absolutely. And it'll be great to have you back at some point. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I'd sure. love to. Absolutely. <laughs> That's it for this episode. Um, please share with us what your thoughts are uh, in the comment section below. And we'd love to, you know, further the discussion on any interesting points that you might have to add. Um, do you think there's something that we could have covered more? Please let us know. If you don't agree with us, absolutely. Um, we'd love to discuss more. And w who knows, maybe that will become a podcast episode of its own if you could bring up something that we might have missed. And if you'd like to know more about the training decay stuff that we were talking about that UserWise is working with the FDA on, um, we'll make sure to reference that as well. So feel free to check it out. You can also go to userwiseconsulting.com. Um, our website carries all the resources that you know we kind of reference. and. Um, and feel free to check out any um, cool content that you like and let us know if you need anything. So that's it for this episode then. Thanks, thanks again, Riley. Thanks for uh, your time and thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.